Welcome, Robin Sills. Welcome to Medically Speaking. I'm glad you can join us tonight. We are um, on a chilly night in January, a little chilly night, but we'll take it. That's January after all, right, Johnny? Johnny, you cut out the local news. We won't tell Chris. <laughs> we won't tell Chris. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Um, and I apologize for our last show. I know it got interrupted, but we are going to bring Dr. Macaroon back and we're going to talk more with him about the regional bariatric program that we have at St. Mary's Hospital in addition to um, our regional approach, which involves all our other hospitals. But our goal for January is really to focus on a healthier you. And a healthier you doesn't always just mean us focusing on your diet and focusing on exercise, which is something that, you know, we always lead off after the Christmas holidays. It also focuses on everything, general health. And I have the incredible privilege to have on the phone with us tonight a female neurosurgeon, Dr. Judith Gorlick with NOS. Hi, Doc. Hi. Hi. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. And I know you. we're going to end our program tonight, just so everybody knows, about 5 of 7. Dr. Gorlick has a meeting, and we also are going to be jumping on to basketball here. So it actually works out perfect, Doc. So we're going to be going to 5 of Fantastic. So, so thank you so much again for joining us. So, you know, I wanted to talk a bit about you and a bit about neurosurgery and and your philosophy, because I think it it's incredible. I've been on the website, on the NOS website, and there's so much information on that website, but I really love your bio. So NOS stands for Neuro Orthopedic and Spine Specialist. They are a large uh, neurospine and orthopedic group here in Greater Waterbury and work with St. Mary's so much to provide quality care for our patients. And you are part of that group. Group. And your goal, as it says on the web, on the website, is not to just make numbers and test results look better. It's to make our patients feel better and enjoy an excellent quality of life, which really fits into our theme for this month about a healthier you. So I love that quote. So I hope you don't mind that I shared it with the audience. Oh, no, absolutely. Now, you're one of the few female neurosurgeons in the state of Connecticut, Correct. That's correct. Right. So you don't mind me boasting about you a bit because I think your journey is incredible. <laughs> so you got oh, your well. you got your BS in neuroscience from Cornell University in New York. You got your MD right. from New York University. You did your internship in general surgery at the University of Michigan Hospitals in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You did a neurosurgery residency there, and you're fellowed in American um, Academy of Neurosurgeons and the American Board. Board of Neurosurgical Sinuses, Surgeons, and the American College of Surgeons. That's an incredible bio. Well, I, I appreciate that. It's no doubt that it's a long, hard journey to get to this point, but, uh, you know, hard work pays off, obviously. So. Absolutely. And, you know, you have an expertise in a lot. And you, your, your practice, I know, focuses on comprehensive treatment for degenerative cervical um, and lumbar spinal conditions, as well as the treatment of brain tumors and spinal tumors. But you also have extensive experience in stereotactic radio surgery for the treatment of benign and malignant um, diseases of the neuros of the nervous system. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, over the course of my career, my the focus of my practice has somewhat, you know, somewhat morphed as as you become 
more senior and more experienced and um, and then just the, the sort of the way the practice changes over time and a lot of that to do with uh, you know the politics of medicine but whereas perhaps in the first maybe 10 years of my practice I think I, I did quite a bit of of uh, intracranial work brain tumors and very complicated stuff a lot of trauma uh, and also spine, degenerative spine. But over the last 10 years of my practice, it's really evolved. Uh, it's more spine heavy, a lot of, you know, complex, sort of straightforward and complex uh, care for spine diseases that we all treat as neurosurgeons uh, and also still intracranial disease, although somewhat with a less frequency than in the past. Um, and, and, and yes, and quite a bit of, of, of tumors, uh, whether they're spine tumors or brain tumors, but, but it, it does change as you get older and a little more senior in practice. The focus has a bit of a change. So what made you choose this as a specialty? Because surgery in general is very difficult um, over time for for females to go into. I know I've talked to a lot of female surgeons. There's a lot of challenges, but we've really definitely broke, you guys have broken the barrier to that. What made you take neurosurgery, which is a very heavily male-dominated field? You know, it's a good question and one I just had to answer last week, so I had to think about this. I was talking to first and second year medical students in sort of a surgical symposium for, for young students who are trying to decide whether they ultimately want to pursue a surgical career. So many of us subspecialists were there talking to them about what it's been like, the journey on, you know, for our specialty. And I would say, you know, um, quite ironically, when I started out at Cornell, I actually began as an animal science major, and I went to Cornell because I was going to go to veterinary school. Um, and <laughs> that's the honest truth. I was an animal science major, but along the way, I... I I had some very important mentors um, who were physicians, uh, and, um, and it steered me in a different direction, and I, I began to really become interested in neuroscience, and so I changed my major to neurosciences, and as a result of that, it was sort of one event kind of, um, you know, that, that led to the next, and because I graduated Cornell with a degree in neurosciences, when I applied for medical school, uh, in a lot of the centers that I interviewed, I was interviewed either by a neurophysiologist or wow. neuroscientist wow. of some sort. But then there was this one place where I went, which was New York University, NYU, where I was interviewed by a pediatric neurosurgeon for my medical school interview. Wow. And really that was the pivotal moment. That person, and he knows, I have often said that without that one moment in time, probably my life may have taken a different direction. But um, we just hit it off in the interview, and at the, at the end of the interview, he said, would you like to go make rounds with me? And I rounded with him for several hours on all his patients at the Rusk Institute. And after rounds, he said, how about you want to go to the OR? I have a bunch of cases to do. And wow. I spent the entire night in the OR with him, scrubbed on his cases. Those are years where that could happen. Of course, things have changed, and that was right. a long time ago. Uh, but it was really that connection to this person who took an interest in me, who then became my mentor. I went to NYU, as you mentioned, for medical school. He was my advisor and mentor through all of medical school. And I really went into neurosurgery to become originally a pediatric neurosurgeon. And, and you know, again, like the way life changes, uh, ultimately I decided that that perhaps doing adult neurosurgery was a better long-term fit for me. Right. But that's really how I got to where I am today. It was I, all about sort of having somebody as a mentor. I, I find that so incredible and I think that you are such a role model 
for so many young women, especially in our greater Waterbury community, which is why it was so important for me to have you on the radio and to be able to have this as a podcast, you know, and I hope that our listeners out there realize how you are just so important. You are an important piece um, to what we have not had here in the greater Waterbury area, which is a female neurosurgeon. And you're an incredible compliment to your team because you have great partners, um, Dr. Forshaw, Dr. Strugar, Dr. Waits, and of course, the whole orthopedic team on the other side, but the neurosurgery team. And I, I better mention Dr. Michael Connor Savage or he'll kill us. Um, but, you know, <laughs> your team is incredible. And we have been so blessed in the greater Waterbury area to have that team and to be part of them. Um, and part of that um, history is incredible in Waterbury that people need to know they don't need to leave this area for for their neurosurgical needs. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would have to echo exactly that. Firstly, I feel very fortunate to practice with the uh, physicians that I do, uh, right. who are all themselves incredibly well-trained and uh, exceptionally uh, good neurosurgeons, both technically just good doctors, good people and human beings who work very hard. I, I I would say, you know, I, I have colleagues all over the country, and I uh, would, would not even a hesitation would, would say that the guys in my practice, particularly the neurosurgeons who I know quite well, are at the top of their game at the level of the best neurosurgeons in the United States. I mean, these guys are, are you know, trained at the finest institutions. They are, uh, you know, really just upstanding individuals with, with great practice ethics care a lot about their outcomes and their patients and they're just technically excellent yeah. they stay at the top of their yeah. game so I'm pretty fortunate that way you know when I started in nursing I started in ortho neuro so I got to meet Dr. Karna Savage way back when um, when I was on the floors with patients and he was just a young lad back then him and his partner <laughs> back then Dr. Flynn I mean Dr. Finn uh, and it was so fun to learn from them they were my mentors for neurospine and I learned so much so now you know to have to see the group continue and see the group grow and the ability to bring in such talent we are very fortunate in this area so I know that you were in Shelton too you're still in Shelton right yes I mean I started my life in in practice my practice life uh, in New Haven actually for Mm -hmm. quite a number of years and so I still have you know a practice that you know a lot of patients who come from that area so in order to help kind of blend the practices. I also have an office in Shelton. That's right. I remember that's the first place I met you. And it's not that far. It's pretty close. No, it's right down Route 8. Yeah, it's right. And Route 8 is such an easy ride. It's definitely close. So to take our topic today a little bit, you and I have have met earlier. So, you know, we're trying to spin this a little bit because we're talking about a healthier you. So, you know, I want to talk to you a bit about spine health. And what your thoughts are with patients that come to see you with general, you know, back issues, you know, back pain, you know, what, what brings a patient to you and what are some of the conversations you have? Because not everything goes right to surgery, correct? Oh, of course. No, not, not at all. And, and, you know, listen, in a, in a neurosurgery spine practice, uh, by the time somebody gets to us, they've probably been screened already by their primary care physician or family, you know, family doctor for uh, for back pain or neck pain that's been persistent. So typically, you know, it's not just, you know, I've had two days of pain. It's typically kind of persistent or chronic ongoing or intermittent pain that won't go away, that really is interfering with somebody's functional ability. Um, so, you know, if you, if you kind of took all comers who come who come with those complaints, just my neck hurts or my back hurts, 
Um, most of those we're not going to find. The good news is most of those we're going to find benign disease that's usually degenerative in nature or possibly strain injuries to the muscles and ligaments and can be managed very effectively without any kind of surgery. And you know that kind of runs the gamut of physical therapy and sometimes some anti-inflammatory medications and rest. Right. And certain exercises, right. of course, to strengthen core muscles that can take some of the load off their back. I mean, there's a whole, you know, host of things that we try in most patients. And there's, you know, a very small number of patients who may harbor a more significant finding for which uh, perhaps, you know, a, a more aggressive treatment occasionally is, is necessary and, and may obviate being able to treat them conservatively. But the good news is for, for the for the majority of patients we see, uh, they can be quite effectively managed with non-comprehensive, non-surgical care. So let's talk about and, you that. Know, to that end, oh, go ahead. I'm to that sorry. Point, you know, our practice, you mentioned it's neurosurgery and orthopedics, but in addition to that, uh, we have in our practice physiatrists, interventional pain physicians, mm-hmm. a chiropractor, really kind of rounds out the ability to, to provide, you know, broad care that runs the whole gamut of options for patients within one under one umbrella in one practice. You know, it's funny because I've been with Dr. Forshaw on the last couple of weeks and David Forshaw, who's now, um, I guess, the leader of your group, right? He's the new leader of the group. Right. So right. I was been with Dr. Forshaw just going to meet with some of our primary care physicians to understand patient flow. Because back in the day, you know, when a primary care would send the patient to the neurosurgeon, they would manage the patient. But because you have the complements of care there, you're able to work with your colleagues internally and refer them within to make the best management for the patient before the patient actually ends up back or would end up back if they needed to go the route of surgery. Yeah, I mean, exactly the point. You know, we really can provide the entire gamut of care. And and the nice thing is the records are all shared, so so we we can all kind of access the the electronic records so that we know what has been tried. It makes it more efficient for the patients that way, uh, less running around. We also have the ability to do imaging in our facility. Mm -hmm. So really, I think from the patient's perspective, you know, to some extent, I don't want to call it one-stop shopping because that sounds, you know, makes maybe perhaps, you know, not what I, not really what I'm trying to get but it, the fact that it's it, it, there's certainly a convenience factor to having everybody who may be able to weigh in and help manage a course of a patient's treatment kind of under one umbrella organization where we all have the ability to interact, speak, and communicate on behalf of the patient. So if a patient comes to you with, you know, the primary care sends the patient directly to you, the patient's been complaining of, you know, we're going to use the back. What is the first thing that you look for as the neurosurgeon? And then what is a course you would take either conservatively or more aggressively? Yeah. So, you know, the patient comes in, obviously we want to hear what their symptoms are, how long they've been going on, whether there are any red flag symptoms, are there neurological symptoms that are associated Mm. with their pain? Uh, You know, from from a a diagnostic standpoint, we often start uh, with an x-ray. That's usually the very first thing, and many times that's already been done by the primary care physician or maybe through an ER if the patient had been seen in an emergency room. But that's certainly the starting point. And I will say on a practical level, uh, now with the way insurance um, companies have you know, directed their authorizations, it can be very difficult for patients to to be sent for MRI imaging right. of a body part, in our case, let's say their neck or their back, uh, 
unless they've already completed usually like four to six weeks of physical therapy. So, you know, years ago, that was not the case. It wasn't so restrictive and we could more quickly move on to sophisticated imaging to try to nail down a specific diagnosis today. Really, the paradigm has shifted a little bit to a X-ray to make sure there's nothing dramatic that would require early imaging. Right. And in a patient who otherwise is neurologically intact, a course of usually four to six weeks of physical therapy, perhaps a trial of anti-inflammatory medications, you know, like the ibuprofens and the Aleves mm-hmm. of the, you know, that category of medication, and then see them back. When we see them back, if they're still symptomatic, and or they have any suggestion of of neurological sequelae or you know or pain that refers into their arm or leg for example that might suggest sciatica or radiculopathy you know signs and symptoms of nerve root irritation at that point typically we can refer for a a more sophisticated imaging study typically that would be an MRI study for the small number of patients who may have you know a pacemaker or an implant like a uh, a cochlear implant, then right. we may just order a CT scan. So, you know, you definitely make a great point that, you know, and it's very well said and politically correct that, you know, insurance companies do manage how the care goes with a patient and want to ensure we've followed every possible route. But as you said, if the patient's presenting with those neurological signs and symptoms, immediately you can go to that because that would be a qualifying factor. Correct. Right. That's right. As long as we document it, yes, right. Obviously, we have to examine, you know, we have, every time we see the patient, we're doing a detailed neurological exam. Right. If we pick up any of those concerning features and we articulate that in our medical reports, then yes, of course, in those situations, uh, we'd be able to get some early imaging studies. But for the general patient that you asked about who might come in with, you know, just sort of chronic intermittent neck or back pain, um, you know, a course of therapy is typically tried first before we move on to more Um, um, more sophisticated imaging. So let's take that person that um, does have those neurological signs and they are, you know, they have all those red flags and you do see that this patient probably is going to benefit from surgery. What, what are, are the surgeries different than they were say 10 years ago? And what is usually done in the surgery? I know there's a few different methods. Well, so of course it's very dependent on what we're trying to treat. I would say the answer to the first question about is surgery different today than 10 years ago, I would say um, the way we, uh, the way we, um, the way we technically do surgery has, has changed quite a bit to more minimally invasive approaches uh, to how we accomplish though, really the essence of the surgery has not changed. So. You know, again, it's really how we deploy the surgery is more sophisticated. We do it with image guidance today that we didn't have, you know, a decade ago. We could even do it with robotics that we did not have even five years ago. And we can do it through smaller incisions. But at the end of the day, we still have to treat the pathology that we have always treated. So so the answer is is sort of twofold. The, The essence of the surgeries have not changed, but the approaches have become more sophisticated. And those and approaches help the patient. Easier, easier, I'm sorry. Well, I was just saying that from that standpoint, it's just easier for the patients to recover from, faster recovery. Right. That's where I was so going, definitely. Yeah. Which yep. is so helpful. So 
for yourself. I mean, if I can, if I can give you a historical example. Yeah, definitely. You know, in the days I was, if I was, the days I was training <laughs> for a lumbar laminectomy. This is kind of a standard operation yep. where we might treat for treating lumbar spinal stenosis. This is a condition where the spinal canal from arthritis becomes narrow and pinches the nerves, mm -hmm. and so the operation to treat that in a patient who is getting worse without, you know, despite conservative treatment, is called a laminectomy. When I was training in the 90s, those patients would be admitted one or two days before surgery to the hospital, get their workup in the hospital, have surgery, and they would routinely stay in the hospital for a week or longer recovering from a one or two level laminectomy. Yep, I Fast remember that. Today, okay, yeah. fast forward today, that's an almost a one level is an outpatient surgery and a two level may be an overnight hospital stay. Same thing for a lumbar discectomy. You know, wow. this is a surgical treatment for lumbar disc herniation. Today, it is an outpatient surgery. They spend one or two hours in recovery room and they go home. It's Very amazing. what it used to be like. Yeah. So we're starting to work towards that. We're starting to work towards that 23 hour or that outpatient procedure. And does it have to be a particular patient? I mean, I'm sure, you know, you look at those co comorbidities or the patients that don't have a lot of health issues. Um, you look at that perfect candidate, right? Because it can't be everyone. Oh, of course. I mean, obviously that doesn't apply. If patients have, you know, underlying heart disease or they're on blood thinners that have to be discontinued. I mean, there are many reasons why that might not be appropriate in a particular patient. So obviously, you know, these are selected patients right. for, for, for kind of minimally invasive or outpatient type approaches, but it isn't the right fit for every patient, of course. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I too, you know, remember those patients and with the same thing, they would come in, you know, the day before their surgery, they had all their pre-op testing done and, you know, they had a really good lunch and then no dinner that night and it was, it, right. it was incredible. And then they would, you know, they'd have their surgery, they'd come back, um, we'd had to keep them in a certain position <laughs> because there yeah. was definitely dye involved and they did well, but, you know, they were there for five days well i'll tell you i think the fact that we even the patients who come into the hospital are not done as outpatients just the paradigm of care has also changed quite a bit right. you again you remember and you're referencing the fact that patients would spend days in bed before they even mobilized years ago today right. that is completely 180 degrees turned around the goals today are to quickly mobilize patients get them up get them moving it really reduces the medical complications mm -hmm. of any of the surgeries we do and it gets them back on their feet and to recovery much quicker so really there's been a shift in many ways both the surgical end both the, you know the hospital stay but even how patients recover and, and the way we think about how they should be recovering from the operations that we do so you you mentioned um levels so you know if there's one or two so is that you know just for education for the audience so meaning one or two discs involved Sure. I mean, you, you know, sometimes patients may have pathology that occurs at a single spinal level, and that's, but therefore that would be, you know, the surgery would be directed to that level. And there are some patients who have much more complex disease that spans multiple spinal levels, and obviously those surgeries are a bit more involved. They mm -hmm. take longer. Uh, the recovery can be a little bit more, and, and, and most of those patients would not, you know, would come into the hospital and, and be inpatients for a few days. And, you know, are you seeing that... Um in your practice, in your scope of practice, are you seeing is it more men, is it more women, or it's pretty much equal? 
I would say it's really an, an, an equal. It's equal. It's men and women. It spans, you know, again, we have an adult neurosurgery practice, so we don't see anybody or rarely uh, anybody below the age of 18. But if you looked across the board, I would say the majority of our patients are between the ages of, of 40 and 75 to 80, mm-hmm. uh, yet we have, you know, a fairly good number between, you know, 20 and 40, and then a smaller number above the age of 80. So, you know, really spans the gamut uh, of the age groups, but, you know, the large majority of the, of the patients we see are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s, I would say. And if the patient is healthy... You know, it doesn't matter how old they are. I'm going to use my father-in-law as an example. God bless him. He was 87. I think he was almost going to be 88. And one of your surgeons, Dr. Strugar, and he's healthy, my father-in-law, but he wanted to have his back done. He said, this is new, this hurts, and I need to work in my garden. <laughs> and he, he pushed him yeah. for the therapy, and he did the therapy, but it didn't, you know, it didn't work because he really was uncomfortable. And he has been pain-free. He never took a pain medication, and he snowblowed last last weekend. He's he's ninety yeah, now. He snowblowed. I always say it's all about it's all about physiology, yes. not chronology. Mm-hmm. I, I frequently say that to patients because I think what I can say is. Uh, you know, we, we frequently these days see patients who are in their late 70s and 80s who look like they're no older than, you know, 60 years old. Yeah. They're incredibly healthy. They're active. They've maintained active lifestyles and they eat well and, and it shows. And so, again, it's not really about what exactly what the number says on a piece of paper. It's about whether they could realistically get through surgery mm-hmm. with a reasonable risk. Right. Right? It's all about weighing risk and benefits. Yeah. And so, for example, I myself... And my nanny never lets me forget that I operated on her aunt when her aunt was 80, like three or 85. And today she's in like 93 and still doing really well. And she actually, at her, in her mid eighties, when I met her, she was still working a full-time job. And I thought, well, if this lady's working a full-time job, boy, does she deserve to have her back operated. Absolutely. And it, and it, it was like a perfect, she was, and in fact, even at 85, she just spent one night in the hospital and went home. You know, and truly, God bless her, and truly back to your quote, it's about making the patient feel better and enjoying that excellent quality of life, and it doesn't really matter how old they are. Absolutely true. You know, and I think that that, to me, is one of the most important things that we can come across, that if you're not feeling right, if your back isn't right, or you're feeling those, you know, issues, you can't just put it off. There's ways to help. You mentioned your physiatrist. Can we talk about what physiatry does within your practice? Yeah, so I like to think about or, or explain to patients when they ask what is a physiatrist, number one, it's not psychiatrist. Right. Um, and two, that a physiatrist, I like to call them, or the other name for one might think about is rehabilitation medicine. Mm. Physiatrists are sort of like the medical bone and joint doctors. They're not surgeons. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're medical doctors who have specialty training in diseases of the musculoskeletal system. So they're a little bit like orthopedics. Right. And a little bit like a therapist, like yep. a physical, physical therapist, yeah. And they have the diagnostic skills of of a neurosurgeon generally, or you know, of, of a surgeon for for spine. They they really provide comprehensive non surgical treatment for the musculoskeletal system. So it includes the spine, but they also treat the joints. They treat shoulders and knees and hips and so forth. Um, and they might be the doctor, for example, that would 
for example, if I see a patient and I and either that they're early in their course of treatment and they're not at a place where we're even contemplating surgery and they haven't even started a course of non-surgical treatment, I might have them see the physiatrist who will then manage that course of non-operative care and that may take the patient through a course of therapy that could be land or pool therapy. It could take them through some medication trials. It could include interventional treatments. So sometimes patients benefit from having injections right. to parts of the anatomy that are pain generators. So whether that's a trigger point injection or an SI joint injection or epidural steroid injections or injections that target painful joints of the spine called the facet joints. Right. So physiatrists and our interventional pain colleagues really provide that level of comprehensive non-surgical treatment. So, and I, I think I know your team pretty well. So it's Dr. Alyssa Darling, correct? She's your physiatrist. Yes. And then we yes. have Dr. Sandeep Johar and Dr. Tamar Ghali as the pain specialists. Yes, exactly. That's right. And actually, um, uh, Dr. Johar is actually trained also as a physiatrist. Yes. Uh, but he, his specialty is interventional pain. Um, yeah, pain management. So that's exactly right. I know your team. <laughs> I know your team well. I definitely know your team well. And everybody, it's a collaborative effort, which is what I really like about it. You know, you have all the disciplines right there so that you bounce things off of each other. And I think that that is so important. Now, you know, you mentioned also when we were talking a bit about what causes degenerative disc disease in patients over time, and you said arthritis. And when you and I talked, there's I think there's some confusion with the general public on arthritis in general. So can we talk about the arthritis and the osteoarthritis and um, the, the osteoporosis and sure, comparison as to what those are? So let's focus on maybe osteoporosis first and what that is. Yeah, so this is, comes up a lot when I see patients in the office. So they've been told perhaps from their primary care or some other doctor that they have uh, arthritis and then they hear somebody tell them that they have osteoporosis and they sort of think it's one and the same and they're not really sure if it's the same thing or something different. So it's a good point that you raise. So osteoarthritis refers to the degenerative changes that occur where two bones meet and create a joint. And that arthritis comes over, accumulates over years from wear and tear changes at the joint because our joints move. We're constantly moving at the joints and over time, the joint may narrow, you may get some bone spurs, uh, you could get some extra fluid in the joint, which we call an effusion and, and men, many of the patients listening may have had you know, these kind of changes in various joints, hips and knees and shoulders and spine. That is different than the word osteoporosis. Osteoporosis refers to an entirely different entity, which is a term that is used to describe the quality of one's bone. Right. So how hard the bone is. It has nothing to do with arthritis at the joints. It's talking about the quality of bone. And this, so the osteoporosis, for example, uh, would exist if the bone becomes very soft. Mm -hmm. And that is a condition that typically we don't see in young people, except in very specific circumstances. As we get older, our bone becomes less strong, unfortunately. And this is true for all of us as we age to some degree. Right. Some of us will get more, some of us less. So we either have normal bone density 
we could have a little loss of bone density, which we call osteopenia, or we can have a more substantial loss of the density of bone, which is called osteoporosis. So it's sort of like a continuum. Um, and it is more osteoporosis and osteopenia are things we think about in patients over the age of 60, 65, generally speaking. And certainly as surgeons, although they're very different, osteoarthritis and osteoporosis are completely different things, they, they interrelate when it comes to my life. Right. Because when I'm right. seeing a patient who might need surgery, and for example, if they might need some instrumentation placed in the bones of their spine, then the quality of the bone becomes a very important factor that we have to consider. So we think about it in the context of all of our patients, but they are specifically oh. different things. So if you're yeah. doing, if you're going to be doing, um, if you have to put instrumentation in, so in the case where you need to either put a rod or, you know, if you're, you're doing a fusion on a patient, does it, do yeah. you, can you tell if the patient, do you need to do a bone density scan on the patient before the surgery? Yeah, so generally speaking, I would say for most of the patients who are 65 or above, uh, I would tend to get a, a DEXA bone scan. That's right, it's called a DEXA scan, and right. it's a bone density study. And I routinely get those on any patient I may have concerns about quality of bone, and that that may be because they're older and they're female and they have light eyes, light hair, and maybe a first-degree relative that had a problem with bone density. Uh, it might be because I got preoperative x-rays, and on the x-rays I can tell that the bone looks pretty demineralized, and I want to get a more discrete measurement on that, so I might order a DEXA study. Uh, nowadays, I believe that for all patients who have Medicare, they will cover the cost of a DEXA scan right. for all women right. every other year who are over the age of 65, right. and for all men over the age of 70 every other year, so only once every other year. Of course, there are many circumstances that might, or risk factors that could increase somebody's, you know, risk of developing poor bone quality at a younger age, and therefore sometimes these studies are necessary in younger folks. I mean, there are, you know, there's a whole kind of a list of risk factors that we always have to think about. So if I see a patient who's had a 40-year history of smoking, mm. um, I might have a greater concern about the quality of their bone because that would be one potential of the risk factors for developing poor bone quality. So for all our smokers uh, out there, smoking does affect yeah. your bone. Oh, absolutely, and, and not a good way. Yeah, so that, absolutely. That would be... People, yeah. people so, don't realize how much it affects so many different aspects of your life. And I don't think they ever attribute it to the bone density, but it really does because it... it yeah, it, so I mean, other you just to put out there, I mean, risk factors. So if you're female, you're already at greater risk than if you're male. If you're thin, if you're thin-framed uh, and you have been relatively inactive, because we do know that weight-bearing exercises is very critical in maintaining your bone health. <laughs> Not just exercise, but weight-bearing exercises is really important. So patients at advanced ages who have been cigarette smoker, you know, smokers, as we mentioned, excess alcohol intake. So patients who regularly consume either just regularly or to excess alcohol have an increased risk of developing uh, problems with bone 
density over time. Obviously, patients I mentioned before with family histories uh, of you know first degree relatives uh, who have had osteoporosis or osteoporotic related fractures, and also patients who have been on chronic steroid use, whether they're chronic steroid inhalers because they have asthma or COPD, mm. or whether they take systemic steroids because they have some kind of underlying inflammatory condition like Crohn's or you know, or a rheumatologic disease right. um, for which they need steroids, those, those patients are also at higher risk of developing osteoporosis at younger ages, among others. So if you, fee- if you find someone that has osteoporosis and you need to do... Um you need to do surgery on them where you would need to put in hardware or something to stabilize the spine. How does that change what you do? Yeah, so that's a good question. And one, you know, that that comes up in the office from time right. to time. Um, I would say it's rare that a patient has such poor bone quality that we just cannot do surgery. Does that occasionally happen? I would say once or twice a year, uh, we might see a patient who would benefit from surgery uh, thankfully, usually for non-life-threatening conditions, but certainly, um, you know, certainly conditions that impact in a negative way the quality of their life. Um, but if the, you know, so rarely we see a patient who's really the bone quality is just so bad that there's no way we could put screws or rods in the spine. But for the general population, when we see uh, just a, uh, you know, not not a severe case, you know, it's a conversation with the patient. See, so it does raise some some concerns about how the interface between the bone and the instrumentation will hold up over time and there are some things we can do technically at surgery uh, to help mitigate or offset the uh, you know the poor bone quality and and there are quite a number of things we can do from from kind of dispersing loads over more instrumentation by supporting uh, rods with some connectors that that help kind of equalize loads from right to left and and uh, there's some cement, bone cement that we can put down, the screw oh. holes that help cure and hold the screws in. Right. And there's even certain screws themselves that that have a little more forgiving in softer bone with a slightly uh, you know, less risk of having trouble. So, so there's a number of things. We also can use a more rigid brace for the patient after surgery so that they're it's sort of like I call the belt and suspenders rule. We put right. the hardware on the inside, that's kind of the internal scaffold, and then we put them in a, a rigid brace on the outside. Uh, just to further support it. And we might use a brace for a longer period of time than we might in another patient who does not have that problem. So so there are a number of things we can do. I'd say the majority of patients, even if they're osteopenic, um, uh, we, we, we can readily go ahead and do surgery. So I just want to remind everybody we're speaking with Dr. Judith Gorelick. She's a neurosurgeon with neuroorthopedic and spine specialist here in Greater Waterbury. And she also has an office in Shelton. And we're talking about your spine health and we're talking about the different innovations of spine health, spine care, what could be done. And and working with someone that has arthritis. And it's an incredible conversation. So talking about longevity with patients with osteoporosis and having having surgery, um, what you generally see, and is there something special because of the quality of their bone they need to do different? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, what I wanted to do is take a step back and, you know, just say that you know, the good news is that a lot of the things we see and treat as neurosurgeons in the spine um, are not life-threatening conditions. Right. They may be limiting conditions, but so if we have the luxury of time mm. to be able to t- treat 
treat that patient. So, for example, you know, we may want that patient to go on more aggressive management for their bone quality for mm -hmm. osteoporosis, you know, medications, uh, there are many of them. And in the course of one or two years, the bone quality typically improves, so we might be able to optimize them that way and then bring them back at a later time when the bone is better suited to have surgery. Sometimes we don't have that luxury because it does take a minimum of about a year to see some realistic change in the bone quality, even on uh, fairly aggressive medical therapy. Um, you know, there are things we, as we were talking about before, some precautions that we take with these patients, including maybe keeping them in a brace longer after their, you know, uh, after their surgery and when they're up and about. Obviously, we want to make sure that they're, uh, that they're at least taking calcium supplementation and avoiding things that can hurt your bone, like smoking, which we mentioned before. Right, right, so no right. doubt we like all of our patients to stop smoking well before a spine fusion operation and stay you know, as, you know, off cigarettes after surgery to allow that bone fusion mass to knit together, so to speak. You know, we, there are many, many studies, as long known, that the use of nicotine, so the nicotine patches, unfortunately, don't really change this problem hmm. for patients. Nicotine can, can be a bad actor and potentially jeopardize the healing of a spine fusion. So we advise wow. all our patients, you know, to, to try to be as absent as possible uh, and and really to to be weight bearing. So it is important that bone will not heal. Bone doesn't grow except under the force of load. So it is important for patients to get moving, to be upright. So we send our patients for early therapy post-op to get strong, to strengthen their core, and so forth. That is okay. such great information. I'm so glad we went down that road because I don't think people realize. I think they do, but they don't. That you need to put the work in before and after to maintain the best yeah. outcomes? Well, listen, and, you know, to that point, um, as, I, you know, I think it has not come as, as a surprise that, you know, in this country, we have also an obesity issue. And right. so, you know, and, and that and that has its own set of kind of issues with respect to, you know, to treating neck and back pain right. and also when it comes to surgical intervention. So from, from the patient's point of view, you know, if there's one piece of advice as a surgeon I could, that I could give everybody, you know, just what could you do? Not what can I do to help treat you, but what could you right. do to help treat you? Um, those things would be, you know, good diet, weight-bearing exercise, slim down, do core strengthening, you know, stop smoking. You know, there are, there are many things that patients could take ownership to that would improve the situation that they may find themselves in, not, and if it doesn't, if they do all those things and they still in pain, if nothing else, it improves their risk profile should they need surgery. Right, that's it, such it good information. It gives them a better chance of a better outcome. Absolutely. You know, and I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I, you know, you mentioned neck, and I know you and I didn't talk a lot about that, but how many, do you see a lot of patients um, in your office with neck pain radiating down the arms? So we always focus on back, but I know as a nurse and all the lifting that I've done over the years, I've been really lucky and I've not had that. I've had, I had good nursing instructors that taught us really good body mechanics. But I know a lot of nurse friends that have had a lot of neck issues in lifting patients, and I'm sure that's very job-related to a lot of people. Do you see a lot of that? Oh, all the time. In fact, it's a very timely question because just yesterday I spent all day doing a very 
involves reconstruction in a neck in somebody who is a nurse. So, <laughs> you know, as, it, as it turns out, um, but but yes, it's, it's not unique to nurses. I mean, there's lots of. In fact, I have several. A lot of I've quite a cadre of dentists actually, as you can imagine, since they are always tooting yeah. their heads and looking up into people's mouths um, who have bum necks as well. But so do lots of other people. I mean, you know, unfortunately, getting older mm. just is you know related to the for, for many of us you know, the development of arthritis in our spines, that we don't have to be firefighters and policemen and construction workers to develop bad necks and backs. We can just be, you know, average folks who have average jobs, even desk jobs, who may have a genetic predisposition. Because if you really looked at your risk factors for developing a bad neck or back, the, the primary one is your genetics. It's, hmm. you, know, you know, did your mom and dad have a bad neck? Do you have siblings who have bad necks or backs? Um, and, and so that's the primary one. And then there's all the other things we already talked about. Oh yeah, and, and contribute oh, yeah, to, to the you know to the risk of developing problems with the spine. And so yes, uh, if you spent any day with me in the office, half the day we'll see you know patients with uh, neck and arm symptoms, and half the day we'll probably see patients with uh, you know low back and, and leg symptoms. And leg symptoms, um, or some of them have all of the above because a lot of people will have a bad neck, have a bad back, and vice versa. Right, now, one person and one yeah. spine. How do neck patients do with therapy? Do you see them progress um, where they don't need surgery? Do you see they tend to come back more and have surgery? I know, I mean, I've seen both, but I was just wondering as a surgeon, what do you tend to see? Can you get away with not doing surgery on your neck and and having the therapy and being good with that? Because it's not a weight-bearing piece. I think that's more wear and tear. The answer to that is 100% yes, that most patients will not need surgery mm. for their necks, no matter how they come to me. So, you know, for the patients who come with, you know, neck pain or neck and arm pain, I would say the large majority of all those patients will be well managed with a course of physical therapy. Some for some of those, traction can be very effective. Mm-hmm. Electrical stim can be very effective. Um, you know, if they persist despite courses of therapy, then we often will use, you know, then there's a role for massage and acupuncture and some very gentle chiropractic treatment on in the right selected patients. Uh, medications have a role, as I already mentioned, they're usually used in conjunction with some of these tools. That we try to stick with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications up front, and that can be very helpful. Occasionally, someone has an acute, really gets an acute crisis, and they're miserable in pain. That we might use a course of very brief course of oral steroids to settle things down. And then beyond that, we, you know, as I mentioned, similar to the lumbar spine, there are a variety of interventional treatments uh, that can be done for the neck, much like for the back, including. Uh, uh, facet injections and epidural steroid injections and trigger point injections, sometimes even Botox injections. <laughs> so there really is a, a large number of things that can be tried for patients uh, who are otherwise you know, reasonably neurologically intact and, and don't need something acute done. And most patients will get better. doesn't mean they get better in a week. Sometimes it may take some months and they may have to work at it at home as well. But I would say the large majority of patients ultimately do not come to surgery. With that said, those patients who have a progressive course, you know, severe uh, pain down one or both extremities, have progressing neurological symptoms that could be things like weakness or numbness, uh, or they're, you know, they're developing symptoms that their spinal cord may be getting compressed in the neck, so they're having weakness that includes their legs, or they're feeling like they're becoming unsteady when they walk you know, more worrisome things, then, of course, you know, those smaller fraction of patients do come to surgery. 
So I think we are close to the end here because I know you have a meeting and we have basketball coming on. But I (laughs) cannot. We see we spun this, Doc. I told you we'd be able to take general health and, and healthy new you, new year and focus on this. And I think we made it happen. Well, I really appreciate you having me on and uh, allowing me to talk about some of the things that uh, that I do every day. I appreciate it very much. It's an honor to have you in the greater Waterbury area. And I'm just, I'm so happy that you're here and our patients, our community is so lucky. And we're going to definitely tap into you for more and more programming. And you know Sparkle's coming, so you'll be there. Ah, I love Sparkle. <laughs> so this is Dr. <laughs> Judith Gorlick, board-certified neurosurgeon with NOS, neuroorthopedic and spine specialist. They are at 500 Chase Parkway in Waterbury, and their number is 203-755-NOSS, and it's nosmd.com. Thank you, Doc, for joining us. Thanks so much. Have a great Thanks. night. You too. Bye-bye. So I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Um, I will be back in two weeks. Um, It is Heart Month in February, so we will be talking to some of our cardiologists across the region. So look forward to being able to present you with that. Have a great night and a great weekend. Wabin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Thanks. (laughs) 